Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. The subject of prayer is something that will be near and dear to the heart of every single person, especially the Christian, but it's also something that is a subject outside of Christianity that no one ever seems to be upset about, and everybody seems to recognize that it is something honorable to do. Uh, As we discussed last week, prayer is something that not just Christianity practices, people pray to gods of all sorts. Uh, I've actually never had a conversation with anyone that that does not know Christ that was ever offended that I asked to be able to pray for them, and I'm sure that you've been in the same boat. So even those conversations with those that are not professing followers of Christ have great respect when it comes to prayer. But along with the familiarity of prayer, there are many that are confused when it comes to the process of prayer or even how they should pray according to how the Bible instructs us to do so. Some are shallow in their prayer life, limiting their prayers to only things like uh, uh, a new wife or a new husband or a new job. And I'm not saying those things, you should pray for those things, but for some, that's all their prayer life is, is God provide for my needs, whatever they be. But prayer is so much more than praying for your food, your needs, or your family. Prayer is a communication with the almighty, all-powerful God that drives our spiritual walk. But the questions we must ask ourselves is this, how can we effectively pray in a way that honor and glorifies God? Just out of curiosity, how many of you would say right now, Pastor Brandon, I am in the midst of praying for something that God would work, whatever that may be? Raise your hand. Pastor Brandon, I am praying for something right now that God would work. Okay, so this message would hit home to the hearts of everyone in this room. Last week, we began a new mini-series entitled, For the Glory of God Alone. And this series focuses on what Jesus describes or talks about in Matthew chapter 6, which is contained within the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the Sermon on the Mount, as we know, defines for Christians how we ought to live within the kingdom of God. And you can really sum up the entire Sermon on the Mount, as we've discussed every single week, as this. Kingdom principles given to kingdom citizens for kingdom living. Now, the primary purpose of Christ's Sermon on the Mount was to drive to the heart of mankind. As we've kind of really given every single week, as as a little milestone of this sermon is found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, in which Jesus Christ says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And we understand that being this, the rabbis and the scribes said that you are righteous if you conform to the outward parts of this law. In other words, if you don't physically commit murder, if you don't physically commit adultery, if you don't physically commit X, Y, and Z, then you are righteous. Jesus says, no, no, no. Unless your righteousness exceeds beyond that, in other words, your heart has been transformed, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so the whole purpose of what Jesus is doing is all throughout the sermon is driving to the heart of mankind, getting them to look past the external keeping of the the law and go to the external part of the law, as we, or the, the internal part of the law that Jesus Christ transforms through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, as we come to Matthew chapter 6, Jesus Christ brings his focus to the heart behind our actions. Jesus understood that many in the crowd were doing acts of service for the pleasure of man rather than the glory of God. So what Jesus does is he drives throughout the heart or to the heart of mankind throughout Matthew chapter 6 by pinpointing certain aspects of the Christian life, pushing man to bring glory to God in all of his actions rather than glory to himself or glory to man. So with that context in mind, we have entitled this series for the glory of God alone. 
If you haven't done so, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 6 this morning as we continue through together in Matthew chapter 6. Last week, we began observing Matthew chapter 6 by looking at the first eight verses total. But the first, the first four verses focus on man's interaction when it comes to acts of righteousness, but specifically when it comes to almsgiving. Jesus says that when it comes to your charitable deeds and when it comes to your almsgiving or your acts of righteousness in general, do not do it for the praise of man, but do it for the glory of God. Jesus says take extreme measures when doing so to not bring any kind of attention upon yourself at all whatsoever. We discussed last week that when doing so, you are not only taking glory away from God, you're robbing mankind from seeing God in those acts of your sacrifice. So for example, if you know that somebody is struggling with a need and you provide financially for their need, okay, by following Christ and doing what he claims us to do, but you do it anonymously, that person may recognize that somebody has provided for their needs, but their attention is not going to be drawn to you as the giver. It's going to be drawn to God. It's the purpose behind all of this. But as Jesus continues on, he moves from giving to now your prayer life. He says, when you pray, do not pray as the heathen do in vain repetitions. We looked at vain repetitions as a way in which the heathen prayed to their gods to remind them of their prayer requests. So it's praying for something over and over and over again for the purpose of reminding God just in case he forgot. In addition to that, those that were part of the Greco-Roman world believed that there were certain words that they could communicate in their prayer that had magical powers. And so the more often they prayed those words, the higher chances they would have for their prayers to be answered because of the magical elements that those words contained. Jesus says, do not do that. Then he ends in verse 8. He says, therefore, do not be like them, for your heavenly Father knows the things you need before you ask him. In other words, he says that you do not pray to inform God, but you're praying for the benefit of your own heart as you continue to seek and follow his will. Then he goes into verse 9. He says in verse 9, he says, rather than praying like this, he says, in this manner, therefore, pray. And what he does is he gives us a template of how we ought to pray as Christians, and we know this template as being the Lord's Prayer. There are several questions here regarding the Lord's Prayer that I do believe lead to great misunderstanding. Matter of fact, I really do believe that the Lord's Prayer itself is one of the most misunderstood concepts or topics within the Scriptures. The Lord's Prayer itself has become a form of, as we discussed last week, vain repetition. Many of you have been part of families and gatherings that they recite the Lord's Prayer before their meals, or they, maybe they recite the Lord's Prayer before bed. And just the, re the, the reciting of the Lord's Prayer can become vain repetition because it's saying words without really thinking about it, not really knowing what you mean, or really understanding what you're doing. But there's a question here, actually several questions that we have when it comes to this. Jesus says, in this manner, pray, and then he gives X, Y, and Z that we'll discuss. But him saying that, does that mean that we are not supposed to pray for things that are not necessarily contained in here? In other words, does reciting the Lord's Prayer must take place every time we pray? So like every time we go to the Lord in a closet, in a, in a prayerful time, are we supposed to say these words within the Lord's Prayer? Does that negate us praying for things like a husband or a wife, praying for a baby, praying for a new job, etc.? Since those questions are not contained within the Lord's Prayer, are we wrong for doing so? What does Jesus mean throughout the Lord's Prayer? We're going to take for just a few moments this morning, and we're going to discuss exactly what Jesus is intending for us to do 
through this model prayer. So the title of our message this morning is this, The the Glory of God Alone, Part 2, Glorifying God in Our Prayer. Now, I could be completely fair, and some of you have been part of several weeks' studies that have just focused on the Lord's Prayer. What I'm attempting to do within the next 30 minutes or whatever, 25 minutes, is take what many people have written books and books about, had developed sermon series about, and condense that into just 25 minutes. And so I am going to tell you that we are not looking to take a a deep dive into the Lord's Prayer this morning. We're not intending to do that, but rather to give you the 10,000-foot view of what God intends through the Lord's Prayer. As we will quickly discover this morning, our prayer to God is not for the benefit of God, but for the benefit of our hearts. We talked about this last week. R.C. Sproul, whom we don't agree with everything that he's ever said, but he says a lot of great things, says this, said this, prayer does not, prayer does change things, all kinds of things, but the most important thing it changes is us. As we engage in this communion with God more deeply and come to know the one with whom we are speaking more intimately, that growing knowledge of God reveals to us all the more brilliantly who we are and our need to change in conformity to Him. Prayer changes us profoundly. And it is with that thought in mind this morning that we dive into the Lord's Prayer by examining five aspects of the Lord's Prayer. As we'll discover this morning, each of these aspects covers a different element that Jesus commands us to practice when it comes to God-honoring, God-glorifying prayer. Here's the first aspect. When it comes to the Lord's Prayer, we look at the recognition. The recognition. Jesus begins in verse 9, In this manner, therefore, pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What Jesus does right at the very beginning is he forces us to recognize both the transcendence of God and the holiness of God, and both aspects are absolutely 100% important when it comes to God-honoring, God-glorifying prayer. So let's break this down here, first off, with this, this, this phrase here, our Father in heaven. Now, through this phrase, what God is doing is he's forcing us, or Jesus for that matter, forcing us to look at the transcendence of God. You say, Pastor Brandon, what does this word transcend mean? Transcend means to exist above and independent from, to rise above, to surpass, and to succeed. From a theological standpoint, God is the only transcendent being. What he's doing here is he's saying, our Father, which where art in heaven, okay? That's the location of God, which means that he is not bound here to earth. He is also in heaven. He is transcendent, meaning he can go from heaven to earth, and he is above anything and everything that he's ever created. He operates on a completely different playing field. Now, think about this for a moment. When you initially start up your, your prayer with our Father, which art in heaven, we are forcing ourselves to recognize where God dwells and where he operates and the time span in which he lives. Not earth, but heaven. We understand that God being um, uh, omnipresent, meaning he's everywhere at the same time. He is both on earth and in heaven. When we pray and we say, our Father which art in heaven, we are recognizing the fact that our prayer requests, our needs are not bound to time that we understand, not bound to the power in which we understand, because we are giving this up to God, which goes above and beyond all of that. So we say, our Father which art in heaven. The Bible says very clearly that his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. We are recognizing right at the very beginning, God, the prayer requests that I'm about to lift up to you, you can answer them in a way that goes far beyond my comprehension 
And whatever your answer is, I trust that because you are our Father in heaven. I love that phrase, Father. He's our Father. He's not God, our God in heaven, our Father. It's personal. We understand that that word comes from that phrase, Abba, which means in the, in the Greek culture, the, Jew, the Jewish culture for that matter, Abba means Father like what we would say to our Father. It's Daddy. It's an intimate form. Daddy, we can say it that way, which aren't in heaven, operates beyond us. But then he moves on to this phrase, hallowed be your name. The word hallowed here provides no direct English translation because there isn't one, but if you were to look at the closest form of that, it would be holy. No other creature, no other person has ever and will ever possess a hallowed name. Only God's name is hallowed. Now, what does this mean for our prayer life? What does this mean from a practical standpoint? God must be honored worshiped and respected and when we approach the throne of God in a flippant manner we are not hallowing the name of God we must demonstrate reverence before God that he so justly deserves and when we pray hallowed be your name we are recognizing how meaningful God is to us and how meaningful he is in our life and this is something that must be instilled in our children from a very young age last night my kids were being kids and they were messing around and Emerson is four years old and so the whole concept of reverence to God doesn't fully understand and fully respect and so uh, she said that Lord, she was reciting a Bible verse and she was trying to be funny and she said Lord and she said something along the lines of because she was messing around with Casey and Chubby, Lord is Chubby, something like that. She didn't understand what she was saying but right away I said Emerson, never, ever, ever disrespect the name of God. Never disrespect that. And so she had to think a moment and realize what was going on and had to explain to her. I said, God is a God's name. I didn't use this word for her, but God's name is a name that is hallowed. It is holy. And every time we utter the name of God, it cannot be in a flippant way. His name is hallowed. We talked about this before, but a Christian should never say, oh my God. Ever. I understand it's something that we say, it's something that we say, but what we're doing is we're taking that name and we are not using it in a reverent, respectful way. God's name is hallowed. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. So the very first thing that Jesus is telling us to do is he's telling us to get our mind right to whom we are praying to and is a God that lives beyond our comprehension, beyond our time, who operates in a heavenly realm and a God realm and not our realm, and a God that deserves our utmost reverence and respect. That's the recognition. That's who we're praying to. Then he moves on from the recognition to the submission. I love what happens here and how Jesus flows this, all of this together. The Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. In verse 10, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I've used this illustration before, but I think it's a fantastic illustration. There's a young man uh, that had a son, and he took his son out to McDonald's one day, and his, he ordered his son a Happy Meal. And doing what a typical young boy does, he was distracted when he was supposed to be eating. And so he's, he's you know, attempting to eat. His dad's already done his food, and they had to make it to their next appointment. And he says, son, eat your fries. And his son, as if like the dad wasn't even in the room, just completely ignored his dad. I was looking out the window. He says, son, eat your fries. And at that moment, the dad reaches over, and he grabs a fry, 
from his son's tray, and all of a sudden his son came back to reality and smacked his dad's hand, and he said, Dad, don't take my fries. These are my fries. And so his dad's mind started racing. He said, how dare, first off, my son smack my hand, but doesn't my son realize that I'm the one that bought those fries? I'm the one that gave those fries to my son. I am allowing my son to eat the food that I bought for my son. They are not his fries. They're my fries that I am allowing him to eat. Bring that into our Christian life. How often do we smack God's hand and say, God, this is my life. Get out of it. And we demonstrate that through choosing everything else in the world to be able to take the place of attending church. Uh, whatever the case may be. Things come up, go on trips, I got that. But making every excuse to not come or to not serve or to not give or to not whatever fill in the blank. We're saying, God, thank you for your blessings, but don't be getting too close to my life. Get your hand out of my life. Let me do my own thing. But what Jesus says here is he's forcing us now to move away from the recognition and now into the submission aspect. I love how he puts that at the very beginning. He says, I want you to pray this, your kingdom come and your will be done. Let's look at this phrase here, your kingdom come, for just a moment. This is a plea before God that his reign, his purpose, and his plans would be realized here on earth completely just as they are realized in heaven. This is not strictly talking about Jesus Christ coming back to earth. Okay, although that's an element of it. It's not talking about just this prayer, this prayer that Christ would return. Rather, it's a prayer overall for God's kingdom to come. Lord, your kingdom come. Now, if you were to think about what is part of God's kingdom, it is us as kingdom citizens. Again, the whole entire Sermon on the Mount is addressed to our kingdom citizens. So if we are asking for God's kingdom to come here on earth, and we are kingdom citizens, then we must include the next phrase here, your will be done. Hold up, I don't want to include that phrase in my prayer. Because if we're all honest, the last thing we want to do is pray for God's will to be done. We pray it, but we're hoping that God's will somehow lines up with what we want to do, right? We can't pray for God's kingdom to come without praying that his will be done. In order for God's kingdom to come, his will must be done. And part of God's will being done is our will getting out of the way. And the way that God doesn't answer your prayer, the way that you want to it to be answered is because your request is not part of God's sovereign will of his kingdom coming here to earth. And so the job that you may not get or the spouse that you may not marry, whatever the case is, as disappointing as it is in that moment, we have to trust in the fact that that is not part of God's will being done here on earth. I, can, I mean, you've seen it in my own life as a pastor, how many times I've wanted certain buildings and certain locations and certain ways of the church to be able to work out, and it has not. I would be lying to you from the pulpit if I said I was never frustrated over those times. Of course I was frustrated, but I always recognized the fact that that was not God's will. We have to pray, God, your will be done. We preface our petition by praying for God's will to be done. We are submitting to the will of God, therefore we are recognizing the fact that the very thing we may be praying for is not part of God's will regarding the arrival of his kingdom. We must remember that we are kingdom citizens living within the kingdom of God, and part of God's kingdom coming to earth is the function of the kingdom citizens. I want to challenge us with this as Christians. We have to get over the smallness of our prayer, and we must focus on the big picture. In his grace... 
God has allowed us to become kingdom citizens. Therefore, every area of our life as kingdom citizens are for the purpose of expanding the kingdom of God. And when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are asking God's will to be done on earth in the same way that his will is done in heaven. And when God does not answer that prayer, we have to trust in what God is doing and aligning up his will for his kingdom coming to earth. So Jesus says that you reverence God, you submit to God by understanding that your prayer and your life is here for the expanding of the kingdom of God, and then he moves on to the next thing, and that is the petition. The petition. Look at what he says in verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, it's not a lot we have to do to unpack that. It's pretty straightforward, right? It's a request to provide for one's own sustenance. But let's dig into this just a little bit deeper for a second, because it can be confusing. Now, those that were listening to this did not have the privilege that we do today because they didn't have the whole Sermon on the Mount delivered to them, but we do. You were to hold your finger here and flip over to Matthew chapter 6 towards the end of the chapter when Jesus says this, beginning in verse 31, and we'll break this down a little bit more in a few weeks, but we'll talk about it here for a moment. He says, Therefore, do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Okay, so we read, especially verse 31 and 32, where he says, don't worry about these things, and then he adds in verse 32, for after all these things the Gentiles seek. In other words, what he's saying is, those things, the basic necessities of life, about your clothing, your food, and all those other things, allow those that are unsaved, the pagan, to worry about that. Let them worry about it. You don't have to worry about it. You should not worry about it because I have bigger plans for you, okay? What Jesus is telling us here is that there's no reason to worry about it because everything that we absolutely need, God is going to provide for us. Okay, now let's go back to the sermon on the, or the, the Lord's Prayer here. When Jesus says to pray this, give this this day our daily bread, why do we have to pray for something that Jesus says will be provided for us guaranteed? Seems a little redundant, right? Because Jesus is not specifically saying, pray for your food every day. That's not what he's limiting that to. What he's, what he's telling us to do is pray in a dependent way that God would provide for you everything that needs to be provided for you to continue to expand the kingdom of God. It's coming off the tail end of God, your will be done, your kingdom come, now, give us this day our daily bread. In other words, provide for me what you need me to do, the tools that are necessary for me to be an active, efficient kingdom citizen. But he uses that word daily there to remind us that we need to pray upon this dependence upon God every single day. Every single day. One of the reasons why we pray for our food uh, before we pray for our food, is to remind us that everything that we have is a blessing from God. It is, it is an act. Now, for us, you know, we, we, are, we, we are praying on food that we never had to worry about it being provided for. Maybe some of you have been there at times where you were worrying about where your next meal was going to come from. But for us in the United States of America, you know, no matter how... Um, financially challenged you are, I don't think anyone has ever worried about where their next meal is going to come from. But there are others in other countries that legitimately have to worry about that. The whole purpose of this 
is that Jesus is forcing us to pray daily for our dependence upon God, that God would provide for us the necessary tools to accomplish his will. Many of you know um, the testimony of Pastor Lal and how Hudson Taylor was a huge, tremendous impact upon uh, those coming to Christ over there in Myanmar. But when Hudson Taylor was sailing to China to begin his missionary work, his ship was in great danger. The winds had died down, and they were coming close to a reef, and they were afraid that if they were to hit that reef, they would become shipwrecked, and it was an island that was filled with uh, cannibals, those that ate other human beings, and they could literally see them building campfires along the shore. And there was no other way around it. They knew that if they were to wreck, they would be stranded there at that beach, and they would more than likely be killed and unfortunately eaten. So everything they tried was to no avail. In his journal, Hudson Taylor recorded what happened next. He said, the captain said, well, we have done everything that can be done. A thought occurred to me, and I replied, no, there is one thing we have not yet done. What is that? He queried. Four of us on board are Christians. Let us retire to his own cabin and agree. Prayer, ask the Lord to give us immediately a breeze. Taylor briefly uh, prayed, and then went up to the deck and asked the officer to let down the sails. What would be the good of that, he answered roughly. I told him that we had been asking a wind from God, that it was coming immediately, and within 10 minutes the wind began to blow and it carried them safely past the reeves, and Taylor wrote this. Thus God encouraged me, ere landing on China's shores, to bring every variety of need to him in prayer and to expect that he would honor the name of the Lord Jesus and give the help each emergency required. So while it is true that God will provide for us our bread, our physical sustenance, that we don't have to worry about it, multiple times throughout our life will God get us to the brink, not because he's a cruel God, will God get us to the brink of whether or not he actually will provide, forcing us to continue to depend upon him, showing us that he is God and that he is in control and we are not here because of ourselves, we are here to trust in God. So therefore, we pray, give us this day our daily bread. God, we need you every single day. Please provide. That's the petition. And then he moves into the confession. The confession. Look at verse 12. Verse 12, he says, And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That word debt there refers to spiritual debts. Sinners, as we know, are debtors to God for their violations against this law. Now, this one phrase is both the most wonderful and the most dangerous phrase in all of Scripture regarding the Christian. In fact, this aspect of the Lord's Prayer is the only one that Jesus further develops in verses 14 and 15. Now, let's look at the beautiful part first. He says, he says, forgive us our debts. In other words, we can pray to God and God will forgive us. We don't serve a cruel God. We don't serve an evil God. We don't serve an envious God, a revengeful God. We serve a God that is gracious, a God that is forgiving. So therefore, pray to him and he will forgive us. But here's the scary part. That forgiveness is only granted as we, what, forgive our debtors. Look at what he says in verses uh, 14 and 15. He says, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. Some of y'all want the forgiveness of God, but don't want to extend the forgiveness towards others. Jesus says that your heavenly Father will not forgive your sin debts if you withhold your forgiveness to others. Now, let me clarify. He is not talking about damnable sin. Okay? He is not talking about the sin that we as unbelievers have 
that we go before God and we confess through salvation that he forgives. He's not referring to that. He's referring to the sin that we continue to need cleansing of from a relational standpoint after salvation. We understand that scriptures tell us in 1 John uh, chapter 1, verse 9, that if we confess our sins before God, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's talking about that to the Christian. Okay? There is a need for us as Christians to continue to participate in confession even after salvation, not from a salvation standpoint, but again, from a relational standpoint. Okay? What Jesus is saying here is that your salvation will not be lost, But your need for daily cleansing will not take place if you fail to forgive others that have sinned against you. Now, the Bible makes it very clear that there is no limit to our forgiveness. I love how we as as Christians try to like, okay, like how often am I supposed to forgive, right? Uh, It talks about that in the gospel, and Jesus says until, uh, was it 49 or is that, bottom line, 490 times, right? The point that he was making here, I can't do math in my head, but the point that he was making here was you forgive unlimited amount of times. Now, we as Christians like to say, well, you're going to wrong me two or three times. Since when does Jesus have a limit with how often he forgives us on a daily basis? So if we sin as a Christian, does that mean that our relationship with God is severed? Absolutely not. We don't lose our relationship with God but it does mean that there is a wedge that is driven between us and God. Okay, we don't lose our relationship, but our relationship, if you want to explain it this way, gets a little complicated. If you've ever been a Christian and you've gone through a time where you've walked away from God and you've realized that your life has become very difficult, it's because there is, not every time, but some of the times, there is sin in your life that is preventing you from that clear communication between you and God. That's why we need to be in a habit of confession. But Jesus said again here that your sin will not be cleansed unless you forgive other people. So forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then he rounds all of this out with that one final point, and that is his prayer for protection. He says here in verse 13, And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The wording here for temptation describes those situations in which we are placed to have our faith tested. The rabbis actually taught that it was good for us to put ourselves in a position that would test our faith. What does Jesus say here? Pray for boldness during those times? Pray for God's grace during those times? No, no, no. Jesus literally says here, do not lead us into temptation. Pray for protection from those times. And do not deliver us over to the evil one. Jesus literally says here to pray that God would set a hedge of protection about you so that you're not facing trials and temptations. Okay? Now we know that we will. We live in a fallen and sin-cursed world. Does that mean that God fails to answer our prayer? No. Part of that prayer and that protection is that we would not be overtaken in that temptation. We're going to go into those trials. We're going to go into those hard times. He says, pray that we were not overtaken by those temptations, that we were able to succeed through those by the grace of God. To pray that God would deliver us from the evil one, we are recognizing the fact that there is an evil one out there to get us, and Satan wants nothing else than for us to fall. But Jesus says, pray for that protection. And then he closes all of this out in verse 13 with his benediction. He says, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So that doesn't mean that we are supposed to pray these exact words. 
what he's doing here is he's giving us a template of what we ought to follow when it comes to our prayer life. We approach God with this recognition that he is the one that's in control. He is worthy of our respect. We move from the recognition to the submission aspect. God, it's your will, not mine. When I'm lifting up to you, I'm asking that your will be accomplished, not mine. And when you don't answer that, God, I'm going to trust that you, your will is bigger and greater than mine, and I'm not going to respond back with an attitude. I'm going to respond back in trust. We ask for this petition, and that is God provide for us on a daily basis. And then we move into this, this confession, God, forgive me of my sin as I forgive others. And then he closes out with this protection, God, protect me to not be overtaken so that I can continue to be a successful, influential kingdom citizen. That's the Lord's Prayer in a nutshell. That is the model of how we ought to pray. And I want to challenge you this morning that if your prayer life is limited to just God provide for my needs X, Y, and Z, I would urge you this morning to expand that and follow the temple here in the Lord's Prayer. Because it's not a suggestion. Jesus says that when you pray, pray this way. 